This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from Queens College in the City University of New York. In today's episode, we talk about race and policing with three guests, Kalfani Toure from Quinnipiac University, Kayla Prieto-Hodge from Rutgers-Camden, and Vincent Rashigno from Ohio State University. Policing and race, coming up next. So I admire police officers. They do a tough job. It's a form of public service where you put yourself on the line. The people I know who are or were police officers are good people, and I'm grateful uh, you know, for their service. On the other hand, there's a clear sense that something's not going right with policing. I thought this was a great occasion to bring in some experts on policing to discuss the matter and, and maybe give us some insights as to What's going on? So we have three great guests today. First, uh, Vincent Rashigno of Ohio State and Kayla Prado-Hodge from Rutgers Camden. They recently published a terrific paper in uh, Socius, uh, Racist Cops, Vested Blue Interests, or Both, Evidence from Four Decades of the General Social Survey. Uh, welcome, Vinny. Thanks. And Kayla, thank you for joining us. Kayla's frozen at the moment, but we'll get her back real soon. And Kalfani Toure from Quinnipiac University. He's an anthropologist who made the leap to sociology, and he studies police discretion. Thank you very much for coming, Kalfani. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for the invitation. So first, uh, let's begin. Uh, Vinny and Kayla, you you guys wrote a terrific paper on uh, police attitudes uh, can you just give us a rundown of your socialist paper? Sure. Um, you know, in the face of of uh, Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, we saw a lot of uh, really pretty aggressive and militarized police response to what what were largely peaceful protests by by all national media accounts. Um, that certainly raised the question of like, why are they coming so hard at at these protests? On the flip side, if you think about really just a few weeks ago, um, we saw protesters break into the U.S. Capitol building, and we did not see police out in full military gear. And, you know, as, as uh, more information is flowing out of, out of that particular scene, not only are we finding out that um, the police didn't militarize for those purposes, but some police actually helped um, protesters get in the Capitol. Some of the protesters themselves were off-duty police officers, I think from New Jersey or somewhere. I don't remember where it was. Um, so, you know, these two events, you know, right before us that recently happened really raised questions about about where where is police loyalty relative to different racial ethnic groups, different protest groups, politics, et cetera. Now, I mean, I would say that it, it it's, it's not a new question. You know, policing has always been problematic. I went to graduate school in the South and, and was doing Southern history before sociology. And uh, we know about vagrancy laws and chain gangs, which had, were very racialized and classed as well in the South. So I don't know that it's anything new, but we really have these high visibility uh, sort of moments uh, before us. And I've wondered about that, you know, is it, is it something about police culture? Is there something about, you know, racialized or racist attitudes going on? And I've also wondered, um, and this is where Kayla and I met each other. I also wondered about, you know, how do black officers deal with this? sort of particular dynamic. And Kayla, can you just maybe give us the basic thrust of what you found in the paper and what for you were the big insights from the exercise? Um, So essentially we found that all cops are more conservative, which isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. surprising. Um, We found that white cops um, are not, let me say this, we found that non-white cops, including black officers, other officers of color and female officers held uh, I guess, less racial animosity towards the community as opposed to white officers. Um, so, I mean, that, that was essentially the meat and potatoes of our findings. Vinny, I don't know if you want to add. 
Yeah, well, and on top of that, <laughs> um, it does seem to be that there is a sort of a blue culture out there that is that actually, regardless of, of race or gender, we found that that cops do align with each other in terms of police interests. Like, should they have the right to use physical force against citizens? Um, do they think that cops or police departments are underfunded, at least compared to the general public? And, you know, this is just an exercise to ask some really basic sociological questions with what, you know, what I think is a sort of a gold standard of survey data on attitudes out there. We know our data is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, but it did allow us to ask these questions that are for sure pressing at this particular moment. Yeah, and our, our findings have been consistent with other studies um, that have recently been done. For example, the Pew Research Center uh, conducted a large nationally representative um, survey on police officers' attitudes towards race, towards uh, funding, towards so many different things. And our findings have been consistent with, you know, the larger studies on uh, policing, for sure. Right. So it was interesting. It was as an occupational group, they are more likely to believe that it's okay for police to hit people. What were what were the other ones? I'm sorry. What were the, the you had some great spending spending. You know whether or not police spending is sort of out of hand or not. You know which which speaks really broadly to some of the the calls of Black Lives Matter protesters about sort of defunding or defunding. should police be defunded in some way um, um, in general relative to other other sort of public allocations of resources, etc. Um, you know, and we know we know you know from our analysis, it looks like you know there are these these differences with the the, the general population and even with similar occupational status uh, 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 groups. What we don't know, which you know, I think some of Kayla's work speaks to, and I'm imagining Calfani's work speaks to as well, is what are the underlying processes? What's going yeah. on here? Is it selection into policing? Is it who who police departments are recruiting or is it something about the act of policing that is sort of driving some of these these behaviors that we know have disproportionate detrimental effects on communities of color? It was also they're more likely to believe that there's too much spending for the assistance of blacks Mm -hmm. and they believe they disagree with the fact that racial inequality is due mainly to discrimination. They're less likely Less likely than the general public to, to see discrimination as a force in generating contemporary inequality. That's right. And to dig deeper, in addition, Kayla was nice enough to hook us up with a very, very interesting guy. Kalfani Toure at Quinnipiac is about, I, I don't know if it's possible to you know find another researcher who has this level of exposure, firsthand exposure to police culture, Welcome, Kalfani, uh, to the well, show. Well, thank you so much for having me. But I, I got it. We were talking about it in the pre-show, though. Can you like, now? Here's a resume. Can you please tell us, you know, your prior exposure to police culture? This is such an anthropologist here. Sure. Um, yeah. So I would say that my prior experience of police culture is being that of an African American male, a teenager in the city of Newark. Uh, and constantly being stopped and frisked and having my rights abrogated by uh, both black and white officers who have um, sort of imposed this sort of large stereotype on myself and my peers that we're all up to crime, right? Um, And then uh, I should say alongside of that, I grew up in a household with uh, police officers and also uh, close friends of the family that were police officers. So I had sort of this um, sort of contradictory, uh, contradicting experience with law enforcement. Those who um, were proximate in kinship um, were great. (laughs) And those who I didn't know were horrible. And I spent much of my earlier life, my formative experience thinking about this in my certainly uh, professional career, trying to reconcile these two. Is it the issue of bad apples or is it something more systemic wrong with police? And that sojourn, if you will, um, required that I uh, would also assume or assume uh, the role of becoming a police officer or the role of law enforcement. Here's the anthropologist coming wow. in here. Yeah. Tell, so wait, tell it. You got to please tell us your experience sure. as a police officer. Where have well, you worked in policing? 
so um, well, I mean, it's so much to say about this topic. And I guess what I would um, just to give some context, I worked in the state of Georgia in the metropolitan Atlanta area, and I worked with three different police departments, uh, both as a specialty of the state. I worked with the city police department and I worked with the county police department. And, and these three different agencies, or if you will, three different scales was intentional because it was part of my attempt to get the most comprehensive experience of law enforcement that I could get uh, in a window of about five years. Um, but what I would simply say uh, is that, I mean, just so much here, I, I, I do think that it, alongside of the technology that has brought police brutality or racialized uh, police violence uh, into the living rooms of, of the average American, something that African-Americans know all too well uh, and have been given testimony to. Um, I, I would argue you're absolutely correct. We saw uh, this sort of um, contradiction between what happened uh, at the Capitol, at the nation's Capitol, at the, the people's house, vis-a-vis what we saw in spring 2020, summer 2020, uh, and to know and to learn that not only the Confederates of these uh, violators or insurrectionists were also law enforcement, but that Congress people uh, aided and, and abetted them, right? Uh, but, but more importantly uh, for me, just getting at Benny's point is I, I can talk to you ethnographically or I can talk to you about uh, qualitatively about both the violence that I've seen by police uh, and also what I've studied but what was particularly interesting to me, uh, what is particularly interesting to me, is not just that violence is sort of the order of the day, but is the amplification of violence when uh, police officers are called to the carpet uh, with documentation of that violence. In other words, how do they defend a very racist and violent institution uh, has been particularly interesting to me and has sort of preoccupied my days. So explain it to someone who lacks, someone like me, who lacks much knowledge of policing. It's just not my area. What is wrong with how police culture is operating or how police are operating? Is there a way that you can explain it in, in simple terms to someone like me who has you know no exposure? Well, I, I will attempt. I'm used to nerding out on this, on this subject, uh, subject that, which I'm so passionate about. But, but what I would say to you is that uh, th- there are the unknown and known factors that um, shape police uh, motivation. Uh, and, and one of the things we know at the aggregate uh, is that uh, both uh, a constituent factor in terms of police uh, practices or their criminal procedures, rather, uh, is race and place. And so police have three principal orientations. They are law enforcement agents. They are here for public service, uh, and they engage in what we call order maintenance and depend on the location or locale uh, and the racialization of that space. I would simply say that you have white space, black space, cosmopolitan space, liminal space, and you have carceral space. I'm not going to uh, go into uh, to explain those, but simply say that you have space that is uh, characterized by, by race. Uh, and so if you come from outside of black space, I'm not surprised that, in fact, you would have a different, qualitatively different experience with um, policing uh, and police experience. But here's what I want, uh, if I could impress upon your audience anything, is that race has always been an important instrument in the socialization of all of us who claim to be Americans. It is a primary organizing principle. Uh, And what this simply means that if you are white in this society, you are attributed uh, moral capital, uh, you have credibility. And if you are the opposite, which uh, in this case, the antithesis of whiteness are black people, then you have a deficit of credibility. You lack more capital. In fact, you are unscrupulous at best. And, and so the police then are given the authority uh, to help maintain a particular social order that benefits, uh, you know, benefits the majority in society. Uh, and in order to avoid the dystopian outcomes, they police black and brown bodies heavily. 
In fact, police are, 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 are have more moral capital and more credibility than any of the two groups, the aforementioned groups. And so police engage in violence. Uh, and no one questions whether or not uh, this violence is gratuitous or appropriate, or this is a violation of one's constitutional rights, because police are considered moral agents. Now, if you understand that then race becomes a way of organizing society and police, as we say in law enforcement, the thimble line is the last uh, uh, line of defense against chaos. By the way, the flag itself is black on the top, black on the bottom. And police didn't see themselves as the agents of morality and the agents of, of order who are to restrain and contain, constrain uh, black space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm going on and on about it. And maybe there's an opportunity to expound upon this a little bit more. But that is the culture. Police, I see, are not only more agents, but they are agents of white supremacy. And that doesn't mean that every officer like myself who signed up for the job are thinking about upholding white supremacy. But what we need to do as scholars is to get into that void and explain how um, one's good intentions and professional practice helps to support this overarching system that represses brown, black life, and any life that is considered uh, abnormal or non-normative. I sort of think about this relative to to policing processes a little bit. I suspect um, Kayla will have some to say on this as well. And I know um, um, uh, Michael Michael um, a Sierra. Yeah, yeah. You know, has has fascinating work on this too. How the the community outside of the police station or the community that is policed is vilified before police walk out the door. It's us against them. It's the good guys against the bad guys. We're going to war. You know, if you sort of go out into the street or through your training, you go into the street and are disproportionately patrolling black and brown neighborhoods with that mentality. I mean, how can you not have sort of abuses of power? So I don't know if Michaela or Kayla, yeah, Kayla, you know, has done this, spent a lot, what, three years, four years talking to police officers in a very large metropolitan area. Um, um, and I'm wondering if, if um, you know, black and white officers are sort of going in with that sort of same, um, you know, warlike mentality when they go out on the beat. Um, yeah, for the large part, yeah. Um, some officers um, like Kelfani um, joined the police force to change the face of policing. Um, but it's hard to accomplish that within blue police culture, because uh, if you want to be in doctrine in this culture, which uh, which is... Uh, I guess, like, uh, it protects you in a way, right? It protects your life while you're in the field. It protects your job security and everything like that. If you want to be indoctrinated into this culture, even if you do have good intentions, you have to adopt a blue cultural framework, which is anti-Blackness, as Kofani also said. Um, And so what I've found is that, you know, Black officers go into the field as well, just just as white officers with this us versus them mentality. The only difference is... The only difference is that they're is that they're black, and a lot of them are police in the communities in which they're from. So they have a different understanding sure. of it. However, them having an understanding of it doesn't necessarily mean that they're exempt from perpetuating these same inequalities and these same discriminatory acts and violence on the people that they say that they actually care about. Um, That's right. Yeah, that and that that in a nutshell to me speaks to um, the 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 pitfalls of these. Uh, you know, easy policy recommendations of, oh, let's just do racial diversity. Oh, let's just hire more black cops. Mm-hmm. It, it's just not that simple. Like until we really look at the organization of policing and look at it as it is, as a racist regime, as a racialized organization, we can't really begin to talk about reform or begin to talk about, you know, uh, how to eradicate different inequalities that happen in policing. Can you flesh out how does racism manifest in the conduct of an individual officer? Because if you talk to an officer, they will say, I I do not harbor uh, racial animus. They say there's a few bad apples. Uh, I, I'm putting my life on the line to secure, you know, communities so that black people, you know, the I'm sure you know the arguments. Mm-hmm. How do you explain racism 
to somebody who's who says that like is 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 that the type of racism are they lying you know uh do they harbor uh do they actually harbor animus or is it more like they're trapped in a socialization system that causes them to you know respond in negative ways like what's your can you explain it to me maybe i'll just like that Broadly, how does it manifest? I think it can be twofold, right? I think that people can just be inherently racist and come to the police and organization with these racist attitudes um, and then perpetuate these racist attitudes on citizens. However, when you have the U.S. government waging various wars on the American people, such as the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on terror, when you have these different wars waged on the American people, how do you expect um, one to act or one to react in those types of situations? If you say... Okay, the face of drugs, the face of gun violence is a black man or a black woman or a Latino man or a Latino woman or any other person except for a white person. Um, if you have these wars waged on these people and these these officers are coming with, everybody has biases, right? Officers are coming in with their own biases. A lot of these officers, especially the ones that are from the community and maybe from the suburbs that come into inner cities, um, just as one example, um, they, their, their only exposure to black people could be uh, what they see on CSI or what they see on Law and Order. And so if that's one's only exposure to black people, um, of the criminal, when they then come to police this community, all of they're thinking about is the criminal. And when you have this organization reinforcing this idea of criminality um, in these communities, that everybody is a scumbag. Everybody is everybody is a is a criminal in this community. They can be three years old, they can be ten years old, they can be seventy years old, they can be eighty years old. When you have this this culture that continuously promotes this idea that everybody is the enemy except for the people that are inside, and if anybody on the inside um, disagrees, then they're also the enemy. I've heard of cops who you know spoke out against things and not been backed up. You know, there's research to actually support stuff like that where. A cop might speak out against racial injustices and not be backed up in a situation. So literally their lives depend on perpetuating this racist organization and these racist ideas and realities in many cases. Let me if, if, if I may jump in and give a very specific example and then point us um, uh, to something uh, more historical. Uh, th so here's an example. Um, during uh, the snowstorm or blizzard or whatever it was that occurred uh, in the state of Texas about two weeks ago, uh, there was a young man named Rodney Reese who worked two blocks away from his home. Uh, he was a high school student, uh, probably uh, uh, tall in stature, big in stature, but his face in, in no uncertain terms, this was a baby. You could look in his face and see this was a little boy. Uh, and he was on his way home from work he couldn't navigate the sidewalk, right? He couldn't uh, traverse the sidewalk because it was covered in ice and snow. And so he chose to walk in the street. Again, he worked at a Walmart two blocks away from his house. And so the cops decided uh, that this um, person who the initial call went out may be in need of help. But they decided that they would pursue this young man uh, based on the crime of jaywalking. Now, I can tell you as a law enforcement officer, there's only rare cases where we would cite someone for jaywalking. That is, if you run out of street and uh, collide with a motorist, then we don't want the motorist to suffer the liabilities with regards to his insurance. And so we cite the pedestrian to say who was at fault. Otherwise than that, we rarely uh, enforce jaywalking, Right. White people jaywalk, black people jaywalk, everyone jaywalks, right? The shortest point between two points is a straight line. Uh, and so this young man was arrested. This is an example of this willingness to see black people as criminals as opposed, of people, opposed to people who yeah. need service. And so uh, and this is what I'm saying. Symbolically, uh, we are the assailants, right? We are the unscrupulous people. Uh, and if this is the primary organizing principle, uh, then I'm not shocked again that black, white, brown or whoever officer would police these two communities in this disparate way. Now, in terms of the uniform, I would always say to officers who came out of the academy, if I'm, if I'm training officers now or when I was training officers then, that uniform carries history. At every moment where there has been a epical shift uh, in the professionalization of law enforcement, 
our, our wonderful text is Badges Without Borders by Schrader, who's at Johns Hopkins. Uh, but at every point, it has always been about race. SWAT teams were developed because of the need to control uh, civil rights movements. The, you know, police professionalization has always been situated around uh, those who we see as the other. And this begins with, uh, at least in the South, it begins with the enslavement of African people. Uh, so we don't have to look far for uh, sort of the nature of the sort of the, the, the situation of racism. We just have to be courageous enough uh, to just look for it and be honest about its interventions. You know, there, it, it strikes me, though, that there are, there are two conceptions of racism that are operating in this discussion. There is one conception of police as being part of a larger institution or structural white privilege, and they serve as a cog in a larger machine. And to me, that would be more a problem of white supremacy or, you know, structural racism writ large, because they're enforcing laws that you know, uh, you know, uh, racialized uh, legislators pass that are ratified by uh, racially minded voters or sort of white, you know, uh, uh, you know, white ethno nationalist minded voters. And it's part of a larger cog. The second is police culture where, you know, police have discretion in how they apply the law. And there is something in between the official directives that cause them that might press them or incline them to infor- different to engage in differential enforcement where like I'll give you a good example one of the one of the biggest uh things that I observed that convinced me that there was a problem with policing was stop and frisk in New York City because all of my students without exception were shaken down by the police like all of my students of male students of color without fail when they walked around in queens there was a period where like three cops would jump out of nowhere and be like show me all your shit show me all your shit and they'd be like all right all right and these i mean these are lovely kids but they're all nerds like i'm teaching a data analytics program and they're they're you know visually i don't see how anybody would appraise them to be a threat that's the type of thing where there's a law and you know uh that where the police have like they can just pull over anybody which is you know which is sort of like a a race neutral law, but somehow they're making a choice to shake down young students of color. And that's something that I would say is more specific to police culture or more strictly localized. Is that, does that make sense? Well, like I, yeah. So I kindly want to push back on that and to say that um, it is easy for us to desire to disentangle police on the one hand from a larger system of white supremacy. Uh, I I want to impress upon you, and I think in agreement with my colleagues who are here, that police operate towards their own interests. In other words, that that police are imbued with not just authority to enforce the laws, to serve and protect and engage in order maintenance. They are invested uh, with this power uh, or this this authority to protect whiteness, whiteness in which they share. Uh, and whiteness in which the larger society share. So what we're looking at is just two institutions, functional institutions of this sort of larger system. Now, you may say, in fact, well, uh, black officers are not white. Well, when I was going into law enforcement, I also was mindful of the fact that I came from the city of Newark. I lacked uh, credibility. I I lacked more authority. And policing uh, helped to give me something that I didn't have. And so there are black officers who are, benef- are beneficiaries of this institution which protects whiteness. Uh, and so they too will go out uh, and implement both the strategies or patterns and practices that help to uphold the larger system. So we got to be careful not to simply disentangle uh, and treat these as two mutually exclusive conditions. Uh, one operates to serve the larger system as well as the other. And Kalfani brings up something uh, uh, really important, and which which is I think part of this sort of police culture thing that I think uh, deserves more attention, and that is solidarity and cohesion. 
uh, within. And uh, Kayla, a few minutes ago, sort of referred to a police officer who may be uh, you know, accuses a police department of discrimination within. And when she said that it triggered, you know, some of my other research is on discrimination and workplace discrimination. I've gone through a lot of case files and the scariest case files I've ever gone through uh, of discrimination cases at work are police officers, police officers that accuse either, you know, their lieutenant or the police department in general of discrimination and are targeted by their fellow officers. You are now outside of the blue and we are now going to target you. We're going to harass you. We're going to pull up in front of your house at night and shine lights in your windows and scare the hell out of you. Or I remember another case of a black female police officer who had lodged a similar gender and race complaint who was told flat out, you're going to work at the desk because I can't find another officer who's going to back you up if somebody starts shooting at you. And you'll never know when your bulletproof vest goes dis- disappears out of your locker. Um, there is a really um, coercive element to this solidarity. Um, I agree with Kalfani. There are rewards if you buy in, right? You get prestige, status, rank, stripes on your arm, etc. But there's a real coercive element if you you move out of it. And of course, I grew up in the Bronx, you know, as a kid, and there were high visibility cases of whole police departments that were not entire, all the police were corrupt in the department, but a few were really corrupt and nobody turned them in because they did not want to cross that blue line because they knew there were repercussions. So I think like the solidarity and cohesion that occurs within blue culture should be a topic in and of itself. It's powerful. To me, it feels like what I've heard from qualitative researchers like Kayla and Kalfani, it feels like a religious cult. with boundaries around it and uniforms for that matter. Yeah, I think that's such a, a good example. Um, I've been watching a lot of culty stuff. Um, so I think that that's just like a perfect example of what blue culture is. If you buy in, you buy in. They'll protect you by all means. Um, and if not, then they won't protect you. And I, I think that that's the struggle that many black officers in particular face, whereas though, you know, some of them may want to speak out. Some of them actually may enjoy the amount of power that they receive from the badge and the gun um, and going into to these communities that they were a part of at some point, but may, may no longer be a part of um, in many respects. And they enjoy this. One of the things that constantly came up in my research was uh, officers reporting that, you know, black people called them racist and they just didn't understand how they could be racist because they were black. And how could they be racist against black people? But if you really understand the depths of white supremacy and anti-blackness, as well as how it relates to blue culture and um, policing in general, then you can understand like people don't like to, it's kind of like Rwanda. So essentially it was like, uh, it was like a, a big genocide. It was a big genocide and nobody understood how to deal with it. Cause it's like, well, they're not necessarily discriminating them based on how they look because everybody looks the same. And it's just, they can tell the difference. Um, and so like in police and when you have these black police officers, it's like us as citizens, we can tell the difference. You act very differently than we would act um, because you may have a white uh, counterpart with you or because you may have a, a gun on you, you may have a badge. You have this authority that in, in any instance, if I say the wrong thing as a black person speaking to you as another black person, you can still take my life just as a white officer could take my life. And I think that people discount um, people discount those things in so many different ways. And I think it's super problematic, especially when we have these conversations around racial diversity. And this is not to say like, if we keep the current state of policing how it is, it's not saying that we don't need racial diversity. If we keep the current state of policing how it is in the face of the defund the police movement, the police abolition movement, if we keep it the way it is, sure, we need racial diversity. However, until we really interrogate the organization of policing as well as police culture, there's nothing really that can change. You can give police money all the time. Police budgets increase every year. This is probably one of the first years that police budgets haven't actually increased because there's been so much pushback from citizens and city council and stuff like that. And it's just like, how much money can you throw at a problem before you realize that the problem is not going to be solved by just throwing money at it or investing more in it? It's like, oh, well, Maybe maybe we need to look at some alternatives. Like, I don't think in any other profession, if we think about uh, doctors, 
would you continuously throw money at doctors if they continuously get malpractice lawsuits? Or would you say, uh, well, maybe that doctor shouldn't be operating anymore because this doctor left tools in this person or this person bled out or whatever the case may be. I think that that's a really good example of how we should also treat uh, police officers. Police officers really have the, the ability to take life and nobody really considers that. It's just like, oh, well, our, our, our lives are in danger. And it's like, well, you also have the ability to take life away. And that, that's a really scary power to just give one individual. So when you ask about the individual versus the organization, the individual has a lot of power within an organization that has so much more power, not even to talk about the unions. We're not even talking about the FOP or any of the police unions that are out there that are, are strong, strong and, and come very strong in presidential elections and city elections and DA elections. All of those elections are, are, are really, really uh, driven by the FOP in so many different ways. So for example, I live in um, Philly I know that they hate the DA in Philly. They hate Larry Krasner, hate him with a passion because Larry Krasner promised that when he got in here that he would hold police accountable. And so what police then interpret that as is he's, he has a witch hunt for police officers. And I've literally heard officers say he's on a witch hunt for us. And to me, that's just so problematic to even view yourself in that way, not to view yourself as, I should be doing the right thing, but to view yourself as, oh, I'm just a target because of my uniform, which is arguably what we we argue, you know what I mean? What, what we go through as black people, like I'm a target because of my skin, but literally you could take this uniform off and you'll be a totally different person. You know, there, this, that's, I like Michaela, or Kayla's example. Um, you know, we were sort of talking about, I mean, you could think of different occupational groups as having solidarity and cohesion, but something Kayla brought up, which was, you know, um, uh, doctors and malpractice. This is, cops are one occupation where it's really hard to sue them for malpractice, as we know from these high visibility cases and the protections that police have when they do do violence. It's incredibly hard. So it is not like any occupational identity. Um, it is a power-laden identity. The levels of solidarity and cohesion are really high. And they also have these historically-laden protections against even when they do abuse their power. You know, um, I, if, if I want to add to, to you, Vinny, not so much about, about this event, about this point. I want to go back to this idea of the sort of coercive aspect of the culture. In fact, I should note that I refer to this culture as blue fragility. I can talk about that at some, some other time, but simply to say... Tell no, us right now. But, but, but simply, I, I want to sort of give you an example of Adrian Schoolcraft. Uh, he's born out of Killeen, uh, Texas. Uh, he's just a few years younger than myself. Uh, he worked with the New York City Police Department from 2002-ish to 2010, and he was legacy. His father, I think, rose to the rank of maybe lieutenant or something of that sort. But Adrian Schoolcraft is white. And if you actually look at the story, Adrian Schoolcraft... Um, along with other black officers, exposed NYPD for their quota system related to their stop and frisk and related to their racialized uh, manufacturing of crime. Uh, and uh, they committed him to an insane asylum. Uh, it took his family to get him out. He had to sue them uh, in order to, uh, you know, to, to, to try to correct his name uh, and his history. And in fact, the NYPD uh, has never atoned uh, in some fulsome way uh, for what they've done to them. So there is this coercive element uh, in policing. I want to tell you, though, as neophytes into law enforcement, uh, I, and personally, and also in my research with Black officers, we are too Black for the blue uniform, uh, and we are too blue in uniform for the Black community. Uh, so for me, this was a particular, this was a, uh, a space of privilege in a sense that I can observe both communities you know, um, while engaged in the communities, but I can also observe them from the distance. So it worked for me. Uh, but for black officers and Latinx officers, you are tested. Will you uphold blue fragility or will you go against it? And those who go against it are on the outside uh, and, and they face a lot of hostility at work. Those who come in support of blue fragility, they are provisional at best. It mean, means this. That if I accept the structure of policing, it's racist and sexist and queerphobic, 
uh, and classes um, patterns, I still have something to prove as a provisional officer. In other words, I never graduate from the field training experience because my actions will always be questioned, even by white officers who have are lower in rank than myself. This is the reality of race. And then that Adrian Schoolcraft example is so powerful. And not to plug, that was nuts. Not, yeah, to, I remember that story. not to plug another podcast, but there's an no, episode no, dude, dude. of another very popular podcast where th- th- uh, This American Life, uh, is that, I think it's called something like, is that a recorder in that's your right. pocket? Or are you glad to yeah, see yeah. me? He, re- I that's right. I heard about that he story, recorded dude. these conversations. I was glued with chills going up my yeah. spine about how they found ways of railroading and finding him mentally incompetent, trying to get him committed. He was afraid of for his that's life right. because he was yeah. doing, he was doing the right thing. He was abiding by the law. He was dealing with, or, you know, calling out his supervisors for, you know, you know, abusing and exerting a discretionary force right. in, in frisk and search. Um, powerful, right. powerful stuff. And that's one example. There are lots of examples in the history of policing of corrupt police, police captains, departments, right. where other officers who want to do the right thing are too afraid to do the right thing because it has long-term career consequences. That's right. I, I, I want to just check my comprehension here. And, and tell you what I'm understanding, the basic thrust of like the picture you're painting for me. I am understanding that you are saying, okay, there is an institution called policing. It has a strong socialization element, has a strong discipline element. To be part of the group, you have to, to some degree, surrender to the group. You have to yes, stay sir. in line. That institution is partly sustained by the institution of whiteness. That institution works with the institution of whiteness and the institution of whiteness keeps the institution of contemporary American policing fed and protected and privileged. And the prizes of policing, the lifeblood of policing as it currently operates now, it is, it's kind of like what's paying its bills is whiteness And it's maybe paying its bills by, I don't know, through the Republican Party, through white voters of both parties who will reflexively support the police if the right cues are given. And what you're saying is that I I think I'm understanding this. It's almost like the, the current incarnation of American policing is too bound up with and to some degree controlled by absolute whiteness. Is that Absolutely. What you're and so blue fragility um, as a defense. So when we call into question whiteness, when when uh, Kayla and Jason Williams and Sean Wilson and Lorenzo Boyd and DeLacy Davis and some of these other activist scholars call into question uh, whiteness and, and the institution of policing as a white institution, um, blue fragility then is the response. It is the uh, professionalized and socialized response. And blue fragility is a set of what I call protective strategies that police deploy against challenges to their legitimacy, uh, to their moral authority, mm. uh, to their almost exclusive license to use force, as Kayla so eloquently pointed out, and to the fictional idea that they are exclusively fit to bring about public safety and social order. Now, these strategies, for example, exist in withdrawal from uh, and the silencing of civil discourse. It involves verbal and physical aggression. Uh, it involves work stoppages and mass callouts. In effect, these are st- strategic responses intended to shut down criticism and to symbolically restore policing as more, or police that is, as more agents uh, and to prevent meaningful and desperate reform uh, and or just overhauling the system, right? Um, and this is what Blue Fragility is. And if you actually look back at, you know, Atlanta uh, uh, or you look at um, George Floyd or you look at some of these, you look at um, Buffalo, New York or Rochester, the responses uh, to the disciplining of officers uh, were work stoppages, they were call-outs. Um, you look at Baltimore, Crime went up in Baltimore because police 
abdicated their, their paid tax dollar paid responsibility to protect and serve because they face criticism. Now, I love policing. I'm a former police officer, and I see a need for policing in the community. I come from North New Jersey. It's a rough community. Uh, but you invalidate the good uh, if we don't look at the systemic issues. I'm going to ask a question of the, my other panelists because they both have the question. You know, Kalfani, you talked about sort of sitting in both worlds at the same time. And I know Michaela or Kayla, sorry, I keep saying I have a friend named Michaela. Kayla, um, you've uh, interviewed for long periods of time cops that sit in both worlds at the same time. So, I mean, I like to sort of believe that there's variability in the world and that there's no occupational group that is monolithic in some way. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how this balance is achieved. I mean, it's got to, it's got to, at least some officers, particularly officers of color, have got to be experiencing like monumental tug of war and stress in this. Absolutely. You know, um, I, I, I'm hoping in the near future to approach Kayla and say, hey, um, it would be great to collaborate on some ethnographic project where we actually look at black, uh, well, she's already looking at black officers and particularly black female officers, but we, we study the psychological trauma uh, that officers have because really what we're talking about is uh, officers of color are in what we call a liminal position. They are not part of the mainstream in policing uh, and they cease to be members, um, uh, or at least they're questionable at best as members in their community. So there is a certain exclusion, a dual exclusion that occurs for black and brown officers, queer and trans, you know, LGBT officers, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and this liminality is something that we have to navigate and we have to navigate it with such precision and correctness and um, we have to become adept to doing it because, again, as you pointed out, uh, this could be a matter of life and death, not getting, you know, your backup on a domestic violence call or a suspicious person call or a traffic stop. Um, you know, this this could mean your life. You going home in a box as opposed to something else. Right. Or as we say, making it home at the end of the shift. And so I, I've been looking at this issue um, and. You have some officers who tend to just buy in on the larger rhetoric and say, well, you know, hey, black people are extremely violent. They are criminals. Uh, and this is how we have to respond to this element. And then you have some officers who are suffer what we call blue silencing. If, if they don't go along with the system, at the very least, they need to be quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, is, this a, is this sort of what you found, Kayla? In terms of variations among officers, some buy in lock, stock and barrel to the blue and some are sort of on the edge. Yeah, so uh, one of the papers that I'm writing right now and Vinny, I think this is the one that you're actually uh, looking at for me or we've, we've looked at together for so long. But um, so this one paper, it accounts for this variation. Right. So like I acknowledge the fact that there is no monolithic blackness. Right. Sure. Um, and I think that's part of the problem, too, where we get into this. Oh, let's just let's just do more black officers. And it's just like, mm, well, what kind of blackness are we talking about? And not that one blackness is more black than another blackness, but the type uh, the type or the, the viewpoints of an officer or a black person really mattered to a particular community. So from my community couldn't uh, maybe be in a middle-class black community or somebody from a middle, middle-class um, black community doesn't necessarily speak to, you know, a lower-class black community. And that's totally fine. But we need to uh, acknowledge that and address that in ways that are productive. We can't just have officers, black officers from different communities come in and say, oh, well, this is symbolic representation and we have it. No, we need legitimate active representation. Again, if we're going to keep this current system of policing, we need active representation, not just, oh, well, I'm just going to be the face of policing. I'm going to perform these racial tasks, as uh, Adia Harvey Wingfield points out, these racial tasks. I'm just going to be this person. I'm going to police these communities the way that they need me to police them. And that's going to be it. I'm not going to, 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 to risk my life or risk my reputation to help save people that don't need saving or can't be saved. And I think that that viewpoint is, is very real. So I have uh, one interview um, that really, really sticks out to me when I think about this. And 
I gave this guy an example of, um, and this is when I first started the project, gave this guy an example of an experience that I had with a black police officer, an experience that one of my sisters had with a black police officer. And he says, oh, well, the reason why black cops go in and are more hard on black people than the white cops is because this is our reputation. You as a black person, you speak for us. So the white cop is looking at me as though I'm, I'm a bad person. So then I have to go and I have to correct you in a way. But again, you, it's different types of blackness. And, and the, the blue police culture doesn't allow for that. And I mean, society doesn't really allow for that, that conversation, really. Like we, we, we all get grouped in. Everybody's a, a criminal black male, a criminal black female, whatever the case may be. Um, so society doesn't really want to have this conversation about the nuances of blackness and different intentions of black people. So, for example, if we if we think about even political leaders, if we think about a person like Ben Carson, would I want Ben Carson making housing decisions for inner city communities, inner city Camden or inner city Philadelphia? Would I want Ben Carson doing that? I, I really, that's, that's right. That's right. You know, so I think that it's, this, it's, it's, it's these different types of blackness that we really have to acknowledge, you know, and not all black officers are going to be the speaking piece to the black community. In my research, some black officers were saw themselves and from my interpretation, were really racial justice oriented. But typically those officers don't last because they just understand that it's impossible to try to do the race work to, to commit to amend for century years of oppression, they realize that they're sure. up against a, a system, an organization, a union that just would never allow for anything like that. And so like when for you sure. think about the mental mental health of black police officers in particular, but all police officers in general, because all of them suffer trauma if, we, if we're being very real. Um, but if you think about the mental health status of black police officers toting the line, this double consciousness that they're constantly going through like, oh, they're trying to be blue. They're trying to be black. They're trying to understand, but they sure. have these organizational expectations that if they don't conform, as uh, Tomas McDeviant Evan Holt say, th these these mechanisms of social closure will come into play. And so again, mm -hmm. they fear for the, they have to fear for their lives. They have to fear for their kids' lives. They have to fear for their job and, and different things like that. So I think that there's so many things that we have to account for that, you know, people just pass off reform as, oh, we'll just We'll just do this reformer. We'll do that reformer. It's just not that simple. Sure. And I and I found I found that um, you know they say that officers tend to burn out three to five years. Um, and what I found is at least, and this is more anecdotal because I haven't um, done uh, or, or worked with another black enough black officers in some representative way to understand if this is more universal uh, or more general. That is that they burn out around seven years, those who try to navigate both fields. In other words, those who try to become important agents and resources in their community and protect their community, but also tries to walk the line of policing. These people are officers who would get involved in community uh, activities or, you know, outside of law enforcement. They would become local coaches uh, and things like that. But just the, the the practicality of trying to do this is very onerous. And, and I found that these officers, um, you know, tend to burn out. And that's on the good side. Now, uh, what I've also seen uh, in, the in the city of New Haven, uh, that these officers often rise in rank because they become important interlocutors between the larger community. Right. Those officers who tend to lock, stock and barrel by the narrative of this criminalized these criminalized constituencies don't necessarily rise the rank in a way because they don't have an interest in the community. These black officers have accepted that this is a problematic group. Uh, the courts have failed us. There's a revolving door and we keep ending up dealing with the same derelict members of society. Whereas those who are also trying to navigate this and be a resource to their community, uh, they tend to rise in ranks because they've established significant ties with them, but they burn out. Wait, Calfani, can I understand this correctly? I, I think what you're saying is if you're a black officer, the good career play is to go hard on enforcement against communities of color because then you can rise through the ranks and be a... You know, sort of be like the the liaison between the blue and the black community. Whereas 
it is less advantageous or a less successful career route to try to, you know, change the system or humanize people. Or is that what you're saying? I heard him saying actually something different. I heard him saying the the, the officers that last longer and that rise are those that effectively play both sides of this. That is, they try Ah. to integrate their communities, but they also are sort of stand up officers. I would imagine, Calfani, I mean, if correct me if I'm going off on a tangent here, but those officers are probably symbolically really important for police departments to hold up, especially at pivotal moments when they're attached. Absolutely. The These are your tokens at times. They become tokenized by the police departments, uh, not only for its public marketing campaigns of inclusion and diversity, uh, but they are often the individuals you put out on Front Street when there is a critical incident where the criminal procedures of the officers is questionable and it may have led to death or bodily harm of some constituent member of society. Now, this is a clarification here. Uh, the officers who, by the narrative, lock, stock, and barrel may last longer than these um, individuals who are able to effectively play both sides and, and, and serve as a resource to the community. Uh, because the ones who go lock, stock, stock and barrel, um, they are accepted or they have a, 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 a lesser provisionality than the one who plays the system. But the one who is valued is the one who becomes an important interlocutor uh, to the community, right? So you have, on the one hand, this one black and brown officer who is going to police black and Latinx folk, police transgendered folk or LGBTQ&A folk, police them, and they're going to be very punitive in their policing, uh, and that's it. Whereas this one who balances more... uh, Adequately, he or she knows how to pivot from law enforcement to service, hmm. and that's a difference. Wouldn't those are they are they effective change agents at all if they're able? If, right, or are they symbolic, well, or are they simply symbolically beneficial? Well, this is one of the things, the questions I have, and I I hope uh, to study it. I'm not just interested in this topic to see what is the the rate of burnout for these particular type of offices. But I do want to distinguish uh, that, as Caleb pointed out, every black officer is not my kin or every black officer cannot be categorized in any one or two boxes. But there is a variety of, um, you know, uh, self-adopted policing styles, if you will, amongst black and brown officers. And, And the sociological record has to deal with this. The anthropological record has to engage this. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Michaela's or Kayla's on the way to doing this. I mean, like Du Boisian double consciousness and the veil is just prime for this. And I know you're drawing from uh, Du Bois. I mean, did you find the same thing, Kayla, in your work in terms of either sort of burnout or those cops, black cops that that buy in lock, stock and barrel versus those that are trying to negotiate? You know what one cop told me? Uh, He said, he said he, he we, we were sitting down and there was a whiteboard and he drew a table and he says, OK, this is the chief. This is the lieutenant. This is such and such. This is such and such. And these are the people that are at the table. These are the people that are making the decisions. But you still have a slew of patrol officers who even though in spite of organizational policies or organizational they're going to maintain organizational culture because of the way it's been perpetuated throughout history. It's really hard to break down culture. It's really, really hard to break down culture. Mm-hmm. How do you, how really do you break down somebody's culture without killing off everybody? And that is a whole different problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like these officers, I don't think that many of them, well, not many of them, some of them don't see the change being at the top of the ranks. So you can have these people who are at the top and these symbolic actors who are at the top. However, they don't necessarily influence everything that's going on at the bottom. They don't have day-to-day interactions with officers and they're not checking officers on, oh, well, I just read this report about you and you need to explain why you stopped this person. There's no such thing. So if you have this disconnect between somebody who is symbolically empowered and who really might be trying to make a change, but you have an entire organization with managers as well as uh, the, the, the workers uh, kind of uh, resisting this, these changes. How then do you really create change? And I think that, you know, in my research, I've really found that 
it's 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 really hard, if not impossible. You can have all the black officers you want at the top. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually going to be real changes, especially if you have uh, lieutenants, if you have uh, sergeants, if you have, uh, I forget the other rank, but if you have all of these people in the lower rankings of uh, the supervisory or the hierarchy, uh, giving commands and orders to the patrol officers, if they don't want the change, they're not going to implement the change. That That's just the reality of it. This is interesting. I mean, this is int- I mean, and you know what? Corporations are no different than this, right? We have these formal rules at the top that are at face value neutral. Um, everybody should be doing the job the same way, but we know within contemporary organizations and police organizations are no exception that there is some flexibility, movement, discretion sure. that can happen, um, you know, from top to bottom. I mean, look, they they were trying to get rid of they were making dedicated efforts against sexual harassment in like the 90s. I, right. I mean, we're like 30 years later, 30 years later and racial discrimination, gender discrimination, yep. age discrimination, workplaces. Legally, this should not be happening. But there are tens right. of thousands of cases every year, you know, in just corporations, let alone police departments. And we like to think, you know, justice is blind. Um, at the corporate level, but also at the policing level, right? Policing is blind. They're just following the rules. But as, as uh, both Kayla and Kalfani have sort of pointed out, there's, there is discretion there. I mean, they're disproportionately patrolling communities of color to begin with. So, you know, the likelihood of bad instances are, is going to go up, but there's also discretion in who they're going to stop and frisk on their way to a data analytics class at your university, Joe. All right, we're 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 almost out of time. Uh, I just wanted to leave off with one last question. It's, it it sounds very hopeless in a way. Is there anything that that like? Is there anything that we can do? Because I mean, I, I've spoken about like defunding the police. Uh, I I've spoken to police officers, and like they do make some compelling arguments about how defunding the police could result in more violence. I mean, these are the arguments. Uh, uh, they've I've heard arguments. Well, you tell me, is there uh, is there what can be done to get rid of this problem? I mean, I would I would throw in like some kind of accountability. You know, I mean, this is true in, in discrimination law more generally. Um, but I think it could be true of policing like police have protections that, you know, these these this is umbrella of protections around them when they do engage in violent acts against citizens. Um, I'm not sure that that should be the case, that they should have those just as uh, corporate CEOs have protections around them. You know, you can sue the corporation. You can't sue the individual. Um, um, so I, I think fi- figuring out some creative means of accountabilities, at least one small ingredient in this. And with regard to funding, I don't know what they need more funding for. What do they need more funding? More prisons, um, you know, tanks, urban assault tanks. Um, You know, they've been, police departments have been inheriting, even university police departments have been inheriting, you know, secondhand military equipment for the last decade. It's it's sort of ridiculous. So tell me what they need more funding. I'll tell you what the argument, the argument as it was presented to me, because look, I do household finance, so I'm not an expert on this. (laughs) But um, to me, and this kind of gets to Michael Arevalo uh, Sierra says, uh, about police always being focused on danger and the prospects of violent confrontation. Mm-hmm. And the argument that has been given to me is that an officer in isolation who feels threatened is more likely to reach for his service revolver if he is afraid rather than if there is a numerical superiority of police in that situation, then it might move to a type of physical restraint because there's greater numbers. This was the argument that was given to me. I don't judge it either way. I don't really know anything about it. But this was the argument as it was presented to me. Now, the argument that I hear from Michael is that there's an exaggeration of the risk Mm -hmm. of violence in that uh, police officers are presented with, and they tend to just hyper, you know, they sort of explode the potential for violence and violent interactions become almost the central focus of, of what they do on some level. And it becomes like an axis around which their culture is built, but whether or not it's objective, like that's, that's where their mindset is. Um, But so I I don't know on that, but 
you could comment on that or if you know of you know your your vision of what how well, things could well, be improved. let me just say that uh, it, it, it's just my closing thought here is that first of all i i love michael sierra uh he's a colleague of mine's good friend of mine's um he finished at yale when i was there and um but his idea yeah, he sent his his, his, yeah. His, and I was looking forward to being in conversation. With, but his idea of the threat imperative, um, which he talks about, I think is um, spot on. Um, I, I, I would uh, supplement his arguments with, I think there needs to be um, greater attention to race, um, which I don't think that that is necessarily central in his analysis. Uh, but what I would say as an antidote uh, what I've argued for against blue fragility is that when I went to my three police academies, I never took a, his, a, a course or workshop in my police academies on the history of the uniform. Like, well, in other words, what is the history of policing? Why is it that mar- quote unquote marginalized communities have so much cynical uh, 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 legal cynicism and distrust uh, for law enforcement? Well, there's a history. The uniforms themselves are drenched in white supremacy, uh, in sexism and in homophobia and in so on and so much. And so you may come out the academy as a neophyte and have absolutely no history. But at the abstract or at the theoretical level, people, whether vicariously or directly, have experienced the the, the cumulative weight of, of oppression that has by and large come through uh, the hands of police officers. And, and to, put, to give you an illustration, when you look at those old lynching photos, you will notice that those individuals have handcuffs on. Who handcuffed them? They were handcuffed by police officers and police officers was part of those marauding, marauding crowds at night. Uh, they just didn't have hoods on, they had uniforms. You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to our guests, Kalfani Toure from Quinnipiac University, Caleb Prieto-Hodge from Rutgers-Camden, and Vincent Rashigno from The Ohio State University. We're on the web, theannexpodcast.com, on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter, at Socianex. The Annex is a production of the Queen's Podcast Lab. For more information, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Our production team is led by Liseth Moreno and Han Mei Cho. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.